Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Derek Taylor. Derek Taylor was a very successful book salesman in the early 1600s, and then he decided to break into political pamphlets and helped popularise Vox Populi, that anti-Spanish tract. He was in fact too successful for his own good. James caught up with him, and he spent a long time in the tower. This, of course, is not true, but hey, thanks, Derek Taylor, for supporting this show and for signing up on Patreon. If you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to Patreon. But never mind all that. It's time to start episode 30 of the 30 Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the 30th episode of the 30 Years' War. Has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I hope you're all doing well and that you're ready to get into this very meaty episode right here. Last time, for a bit of a refresher, we provided you with an example of an English gentleman who began his career in favour of a Spanish marriage, only to promptly change his mind and enter into a determined opposition against the very notion that Prince Charles should be married to Princess Maria of Spain. King James's motives for arranging the marriage treaty had not changed, and are not particularly hard for us to understand either. As the initial phase of the Thirty Years' War threw up more problems for his son-in-law, Frederick, King James felt forced to rely more and more on Spain to salvage the situation. If only England and Spain could be so bound in an alliance that their interests would be shared then perhaps Frederick could be saved from the whole bohemian debacle. This policy hit several snags just as James felt the successful resolution of it to be more urgent. First and foremost, Frederick's defeat in late 1620 and the invasion of his Palatine lands by the Spanish made Madrid less likely to compromise, while the expiration of the Twelve Years' Truce and the entry of the Dutch into the war ensured that James would have to consider his nominal Dutch ally while he negotiated for a treaty with the Dutch arch-nemesis. At home, the pro-Spanish policy was heavily criticised, most notably following the calling of Parliament throughout 1621, with James exercising his right to silence the critics, but never truly extinguishing the desire of those in Britain 
to dispense with these niceties and make war rather than marriage with the Spanish. James was certainly fighting an uphill battle and the struggle was made vastly more difficult by Spanish intransigence and procrastination in the negotiations, a natural result of the Spanish need to support Emperor Ferdinand but also keep England at arm's length. In this episode, after providing the context and background, we look at the eventful year of 1623. To Frederick, 1623 was the year that his final possession, the fortress town of Frankenthal, was handed over to Spain, and he rightly feared the successful conclusion of the Spanish Marriage Treaty, having done all in his power to prevent it. Someone else was on the case, though. The prince who had been promised to Maria, Charles, soon to be the King of Britain, had apparently tired of the slow negotiations and resolved to travel incognito all the way to Spain to decide for himself whether Madrid would be willing to give what was asked. What Charles discovered deeply disturbed him and angered his father, the king, but it also provided the Thirty Years' War with a boost and helped prolong the conflict beyond its exclusively Palatine-Bohemian phase. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to the extraordinary scene of February 1623. If anyone asked, they were the Smith brothers. Yet these two men, with their fake beards and suspiciously familiar silhouettes, were travellers of a far more exalted status than their humble moniker might suggest. One man was the Marquis of Buckingham, George Villiers, a prominent English nobleman and influential friend of the king. The other was, when one removed the fake beard, unmistakably but incredibly the king's son and heir, Charles. The story, fantastic as it appears now, inspired wonder and amazement when it was learned of in the 17th century. These two figures, some of the most powerful men in the British Isles, travelled from London to Madrid in spring 1623, without any escort or any official significant pomp, and they arrived in Madrid on the 17th of March to immense consternation and disbelief in the Spanish government. After pawning off the English king for so long, after delaying the establishment of any solid commitment in spite of King James's pleas, King Philip IV of Spain's administration had not been led to expect at any point the abrupt arrival of that king's son, yet here he stood, and until he received an answer either way, Prince Charles declared that he had no intention of leaving Spain for England. The situation was the equivalent of an ultimatum, and was the nightmare of every crafty statesman because it forced the issue out into the open. Before they had left, King James had grappled ceaselessly with the problems of the policy he was pursuing. Anti-Spanish feeling and a phobia of Catholics as a fifth column in England increased steadily since the outbreak of the Bohemian Revolt in 1618. As the revolt dragged in the Palatine family, and thus James's own family, the extent of the king's dilemma became apparent. His original plan of a dual marriage to the leading Protestant and Catholic families of Europe was threatened because one had been attacked and conquered by the other. Still, James continued to hope that, just as Spanish actions threatened his family and the marriage treaty with ruin, taking the hand of Spain in marriage would solve so many of his problems. As the historian Brennan Purcell understood, 
Having a Spanish princess in London would have increased his influence with the most powerful dynasty in Europe, and her dowry would have relieved his government's debilitating lack of money. Above all, he wanted the marriage alliance to lead to a resolution of the Palatine Crisis, which would have slowed or even stopped the Thirty Years' War in its tracks and improved the dismal relations between Christian confessions in Europe. Yet, the contradiction remained. How could the English and Spanish monarchies arrange the union of Prince Charles and the Infanta Maria when Spanish and Austrian Habsburg arms had driven the Elector's Palatine, Elizabeth Stuart, her husband and her family, into exile? How indeed! James faced the challenge of tackling head-on the perception among many Englishmen that Spain was tantamount to the Antichrist and that Count Olivares and Ambassador Gondomar between them continued to scheme for the overthrow of the Stuart monarchy, the removal of Protestantism and the vassalage of England to Spain. They had been led towards these stunning conclusions thanks to the sheer weight of propaganda levelled against both Spain and the policy pursued by the king. During the last five years of James's reign, Thomas Scott, the author responsible for the infamous Vox Populi pamphlet and play, penned an additional 24 pamphlets attacking the Spanish and their nefarious schemes. Scott was so effective at imagining the public mood and revealing to the people what they wanted to hear, his works became renowned as perhaps the only source of truth that those who feared Spain could access. One such work, released in 1621, was called A Relation of Some Special Points Concerning the State of Holland, wherein Scott insisted that the King of Spain was conniving, disingenuous, and had successfully manipulated James in his quest to destroy England. Scott insisted that it was the duty of all true English patriots to demonstrate that all treaties of peace and truce to be made with the King of Spain are wholly unprofitable for our state, as whereby the said king only seeketh to abuse us, and suddenly to cast a net over our heads. Through his pamphlet series, Scott drew attention to the necessity of the Anglo-Dutch friendship, and reasoned that, with Spain and the Dutch back at war from 1621, it was imperative that England support her Protestant ally in their noble fight. Arguably the second most important running theme was the repeated references to Elizabeth and Frederick, the landless, throneless couple formerly of Bohemia, who wished desperately to return home and secure their family's safety. Considering the very real importance of the print media at this point in English history, it stands to reason that as the situation worsened in Frederick's camp through 1622, as his lands were occupied and conquered piece by piece, English sympathy with him increased. Thanks to Scott's works, Englishmen were never allowed to forget Frederick's suffering, and they were reminded of the scandal which continued so long as King James refrained from acting in his daughter's defence. And for all intents and purposes, King James had yet to invade in any kind of force. 2,000 volunteers under the command of Sir Horace Vere were all that was sent to garrison the Palatine town of Frankenthal. What was more, throughout 1621 and 22, James repeatedly entreated Frederick to submit to the Emperor, to plead forgiveness, to refrain from attacking the Spanish, to maintain a ceasefire, to give his blessing for negotiations, and so many other ideas and schemes which rapidly came to nothing. By the end of 1622, Frederick had effectively lost everything, and his only allies were desperate landless exiles themselves. The promise James had made to the Spanish to resolve the Palatine conflict, and the promise he had made to Frederick to ease his burdens, 
had both proven false. Yet, still, this was not for lack of trying on King James's part. Almost exactly a year before his son and the Duke of Buckingham set off on their adventure, in February 1622, James authorised the trip of another English figure to Madrid, this one involving Sir John Digby, the former ambassador to Spain. Adhering to the necessary protocols of a travelling ambassador with plenipotentiary powers, Digby did not arrive in Madrid until June, but he quickly made up for lost time. Thanks in large part to the influence of Count Gondomar, the Spanish Council of State proved eager to cooperate with the Englishman, and Gondomar even recommended, now that he had returned home from Spain, that King Philip IV give James complete satisfaction regarding the thorny issue of the Palatinate and Frederick's position. By the early autumn, the combined campaigns of Gondomar and Digby appeared to be doing the trick. The only issue holding up the proceedings was the question of papal dispensation, which, it was said, would hopefully arrive by the spring of 1623. The success of these Anglo-Spanish negotiations then appeared to be a foregone conclusion by late 1622, and by January 1623, most of Europe was aware that sometime very soon, England and Spain would be joined together in marriage. Both James and Philip had been persuaded to offer substantial guarantees that whoever broke the ceasefire underway in the Palatinate would incur the wrath of either side, and that if Emperor Ferdinand refrained from cooperating with the proposed reinstatement of the Elector Palatine, then Spanish forces would be used against the Holy Roman Emperor. Neither of these terms in the end could withstand the pace of events, but in autumn 1622, this was not at all clear. King Philip IV, initially hesitant and determined to obey the wishes of his late father and his minister, Balthazar de Zuniga, that the marriage should not be concluded, began to warm to the idea. In December 1622, King Philip assured Ambassador Digby that the Infanta, or Princess Maria, would travel to England the following spring, and in February 1623, Spain's Council of State met to select her travelling companions for the journey that she would bring with her when she went to meet her husband. Strikingly, in March 1623, King Philip IV wrote in his own hand to the Pope to hurry along the dispensation on the grounds that, if Charles died without issue, then the English crowns would logically pass to Elizabeth and her husband, the Winter King Frederick. This, King Philip assured the Pope, would guarantee English hostility to Catholicism, and King Philip believed it would also endanger Spanish interests in Europe. With the crown of England, just imagine this scenario, Frederick V would be dispossessed no longer, and he could return to the continent with an army of enthusiastic volunteers as England flung itself into the void in Frederick's name. The nightmarish scenario required but one ingredient, the death of Prince Charles, which was by no means impossible considering the vulnerable constitution of Charles's elder brother Henry and the suddenness with which such tragedies could occur. It is easy to become trapped in the exercise of imagining what might have been, but Philip was above all interested to prevent such an eventuality from happening, and so he wrote earnestly to the Pope, I entreat your holiness to please take a short resolution in this business, which is a matter of great importance to the good of Christendom. A combination of Prince Charles's impatience and a somewhat surprising acquiescence of the king meant that Philip would not have to wait for the Pope's reply in order to proceed. Prince Charles was coming to him. 
As far as the question of why King James permitted his son to travel to Spain is concerned, we can imagine a combination of factors at play. One of these was Charles's pressing concern for his sister Elizabeth and her welfare, which was undermined severely in January 1623 with the transferal of Frederick's electoral title to Maximilian of Bavaria. As far as the king understood it, he made his decision partly out of an earnest desire to see his mistress and especially to give a final end to that business that has distracted his majesty's other affairs for so long a time. Charles and the king both believed that by journeying to Spain, Philip would be forced to follow through with the commitments he had made. The sooner this happened, the sooner Frederick could be reconstituted as Elector Palatine and Elizabeth would be restored to her rightful place in Heidelberg. Frederick was indeed dependent upon external forces to restore him, though he protested vigorously against the initiatives leading up to the Spanish match, as he saw in them a guarantee against his restoration rather than for it. The Spanish, with England in their pocket, would prevent him from returning home. They would hardly work in his interests and against the Emperor's interests for nothing. Yet Frederick also understood that his options were severely limited by 1623. As far afield as Constantinople, where he had sent Count Thurn of all people, Frederick's diplomacy remained dedicated to its optimistic ends, but closer to home, neither Mansfeld nor Christian of Brunswick, two of Frederick's few remaining commanders, had proved capable of achieving any sufficient victories. As we have seen, in fact, by August 1623, in the Battle of Statlon, Christian of Brunswick's forces were destroyed by Count Tilly's. One consequence of Christian of Brunswick's actions was that, during his travels, he had moved through the Lower Saxon Circle, which had since resolved to raise 18,000 men for its own defence, in response. In addition, the other Protestant electors in Saxony and Brandenburg, so long quiet and malleable to the Emperor's will, took the transferal of Frederick's titles in early 1623 pretty badly. Also in January 1623, Frederick received word from King Christian IV of Denmark that the Danes would cooperate with England and the Protestant electors to find a new peace plan. Despite these flutters of optimism, though, King Christian recommended that Frederick submit to the Emperor's demands, while also taking the time to criticise his brother-in-law, King James's Spanish negotiations, as fruitless. And yet, they were not fruitless. They certainly produced more fruit than the King of Denmark's schemes. While the timing and circumstances had taken them by surprise, the Spanish had planned, to some degree, to receive Prince Charles at some point. The critical point which emerges from the incident was that even while they hosted Charles and Buckingham with every honour imaginable, this was predicated on the assumption of why Charles had jumped the gun in the first place. Since the negotiations for the papal dispensation were still underway, the Spanish assumed that Charles had arrived in Madrid because he was content to skip all these protocols and convert to Catholicism. This assumption, and Charles's disappointment of it, hit both sides like a bomb, and was the true cause of the breakdown in the agreement and the subsequent English bitterness. The way that Charles and Buckingham were treated in Madrid was something to behold though, and it tells us much about the protocols of the era. Before the elephant in the room of Charles and possibly even Buckingham's conversion to Catholicism was addressed, Charles was greeted with rapturous enthusiasm by Spanish statesmen and Spanish crowds alike. 
Whatever the prince may want will be granted him in accordance with the obligation which his coming has placed upon us, Philip IV commented to Olivares. The day after their arrival on the 18th of March, Count Gondomar, believed to be the most familiar with English customs and behaviour, was appointed to the Spanish Council of State, and he was tasked with working diligently in favour of the match, while Charles was the guest of the King of Spain. On the 19th of March, Charles was even permitted a rare honour, to be allowed to see his Spanish bride before the marriage ceremony took place. The Infanta was paraded in front of a carriage where Charles sat concealed, and after three trips past his carriage, Charles spoke with Philip IV for over an hour, and Ambassador Digby translated. The visit continued to go well. Philip declared all English prisoners destined for the galleys were to be released, a divine piece of mercy for them, no doubt, and for the next week, after welcoming the prince into Madrid in an official ceremony, Charles settled into his own quarters of the palace. Philip hosted Charles as his honoured, esteemed guest, and made him feel well at home. Back at his actual home, Charles's father hoped that the marital arrangements would be speedily concluded, since this would save Charles having to endure any kind of grand ceremony in the blistering heat of the approaching Spanish summer. From Madrid, Count Olivares wrote to the apparently incommunicado Pope once again to request that the dispensation be hurried along. As we said, though, when a trans... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Inspired that Charles had no intention of converting, a pall of awkwardness must have hung over the proceedings. It was not merely Spanish ignorance that had led Olivares, Philip, or Charles's intended to make this assumption. Sir John Digby anticipated that Charles would declare his conversion too, as a tool to facilitate a speedy resolution of the marriage contract and a speedy resolution of his sister's crisis. As Charles's refusal to countenance this idea became apparent, King Philip attempted to appear unfazed, even while his disappointment must have been palpable. Philip wished to emphasise to Charles's father, James, 
how much Spain appreciated England's aloofness from the years of conflict, and he wished to maintain a healthy relationship with England to continue this very advantageous state of affairs. King Philip thus determined to press ahead with the marriage, and as he worked towards this end, James not only sent a ship full of sumptuous robes for the anticipated wedding, the king also, in mid-March, decided to hand the town of Frankenthal, hitherto occupied by Sir Horace Vere's Englishman, into the waiting arms of the Archduchess of the Spanish Netherlands, Isabella, and her nephew, King Philip IV of Spain. Back in The Hague, Frederick was furious when he learned of his father-in-law's willingness to bow to the Spanish yet again. With the handing over of Frankenthal, his homeland was officially conquered, and only the intervention of the Almighty, or of other foreign powers, would now be able to save it. By this point in the conflict, Frederick displayed himself utterly opposed to James's peace plans, including those involving the Spanish, largely because Frederick couldn't bring himself to trust King Philip IV after all the Spanish had taken from him. Frederick's hesitation is understandable, considering the very difficult year that 1623 had already been, with the loss of his title in January to Maximilian of Bavaria, and then Frankenthal just a few months later. Interestingly though, it was this hesitation, turning later to resolute stubbornness, that proved the most unfixable crack in the Anglo-Spanish plan. For the marriage treaty to work, King Philip required Frederick to refrain from making any moves which might jeopardise a ceasefire in the Palatinate. Indeed, on the 1st of May 1623, while Charles remained occupied with his Spanish mission, a treaty purporting to last 15 months was signed by King James, the new Spanish ambassador to England, and the Archduchess of the Spanish Netherlands, Isabella. Shortly afterwards, Emperor Ferdinand also ratified it and communicated its contents to the Empire's princes. Peace was to be maintained in the Palatinate with a ceasefire, while in the city of Cologne, the relevant potentates would attempt to work out a solution to the conflict. News of this treaty and of James's signature upon it once again angered Frederick. A requirement of it was that Frederick committed himself not to attack the Emperor's forces, and James attempted to impress upon him the importance of this feature of the treaty when it was sent to Frederick to sign, as Frederick languished in The Hague. Frederick had long been opposed to the idea of a ceasefire, mostly because absolving the use of force took any potential wild cards out of his hands, and it meant that he would be unable to rely on or aid in any way Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania, who was by far his most disruptive and useful ally to the East. Frederick declared that he did not at all intend to let ourselves be bound through such slippery means, and he added that he was not prepared to abandon the chances which military force could bring, being rather much more resolved to pay attention to and use all good occasions that God may lay in our hands for the maintenance of our righteous causes. Nor was Frederick alone. His wife Elizabeth had also lost faith in her father's ability to help their cause. For my father hitherto hath done us more hurt than good, she said. Frederick was desperate to sabotage the Anglo-Spanish arrangements, in the hope that this would set England onto a new course where the anti-Hasburg camp would thereafter be invigorated. The dispossessed elector simply did not trust treaties any more, having watched his Palatinate fall completely to the Spanish after restraining his allies the previous year, and watching his sacred, impeachable title 
be clumsily transferred to the Duke of Bavaria by another piece of paper. Considering his negative experience with negotiations and the unfavourable terms which he anticipated would emerge from any negotiations involving the uncompromising Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick believed the only course open to him was to continue his violent, disruptive, immensely unpopular, in Germany that is, quest. On the 4th of May 1623, only a handful of days after the agreement which caused Frederick so much consternation and heartache had been made, the Winter King was saved not by James, not by the Emperor, nor by the King of Spain, but by the Pope's reply at long last to the previous requests for dispensation. For James, Charles and King Philip alike, it was not good news. The Holy See declared its appreciation for the urgency of the negotiations and the weight of the issues discussed, but it was also added that several new articles should be impressed upon England, which Philip and James would have to personally guarantee in return for the dispensation. One of these new articles was a freedom of worship guarantee for Catholics, an impossible demand and one which Philip had deliberately avoided raising in the past because it would only serve to irk the British king. In this instance though, Philip gave his guarantee to secure these ends in return for the dispensation which the marriage required. This was a gamble since it was at least possible that James might agree to some limitation of the restrictions on English Catholics, which included economic penalties. But the problem was, this development was not communicated to James, it was communicated to his son, Prince Charles, who would not expected, under any circumstances, to encounter additional demands or have to bargain for the Infanta's hand. He had expected delays, what he referred to as the worst denial but it didn't seem possible that after all these years of negotiating, and with him actually in Madrid, the Spanish king would throw such a curveball in his way. Charles and Buckingham were both deeply offended at this, but while Charles managed to absorb the setback relatively well, Buckingham did not, and he blamed Count Olivares for the demands. This behaviour angered Count Olivares, and from this point onwards, Olivares and Buckingham never lost their hatred of one another. As a result of this, Olivares' attitude hardened and he became more sceptical about the marriage alliance ever being successfully resolved. Charles did his best to repair the damage, conversing directly with the Spanish king and impressing the Spanish generally with his good grace. Through June and July 1623, Charles continued to work through the demands and after weighing up his options, incredible as it sounds, he agreed to the Spanish terms. The terms, in effect, meant that Catholicism was to be tolerated freely in England, just as the Spanish had always wanted. What was more incredible was that by the end of July 1623, King James acquiesced, and shortly thereafter, he sent a demand for the immediate restoration of the Palatinate. Evidently, the British king was weary of dragging on the negotiations any longer. Let there be toleration in Britain after all, but the Spanish had better uphold their end of the bargain if that was to be so. While negotiating with the Spanish, James had kept the correspondence with his son-in-law open as well. He reprimanded, coerced, threatened and attempted to appeal to Frederick's interests as an elector who would be restored one way or another, but Frederick at every step had refused to accept King James's terms. What was more, Frederick sent his father-in-law a copy of the letter which had been intercepted the year before, where Ferdinand had written to the Pope, promising the Palatine electoral title to Maximilian of Bavaria. 
King James simply swatted this scandal aside and ignored it, and he insisted that he was determined to rely upon the Emperor and the King of Spain, but that English arms would prevail if English diplomacy could not. Meanwhile, Frederick contacted his far-flung allies and planned to apply more pressure on the Habsburgs with another Transylvanian adventure courtesy of Bethlen Gabor. As we've seen though, Frederick's resistance effectively crumbled with the news of Christian of Brunswick's defeat at Statlon on the 6th of August 1623. At the news of this disaster, coming just a month after King James had agreed that groundbreaking deal with the Spanish, Frederick agreed to accept the terms of the ceasefire, but only if the treaty would immediately restore him to the Palatinate. The crown of Bohemia, significantly, had been dropped from Frederick's demands. Broken by the weight of several years of hopeless resistance, Frederick urged James on towards this end, reasoning that through success, the British king would acquire the immortal glory to have done a deed worthy of his royal grandeur and promise. On the 26th of August 1623, Frederick agreed to cease his opposition against the Holy Roman Emperor. For all intents and purposes after a supremely rocky road, it appeared that peace had returned to the Empire and that all of King James's efforts had not been in vain. Such optimism was to be dashed once more. It quickly became apparent to Prince Charles in Madrid that the Spanish did not intend to unconditionally restore Frederick and his sister to the Palatinate, as both James and Charles had originally hoped. When asked about the Palatine issue, King Philip continued to dodge, insisting that Frederick would be dealt with once the marriage was agreed to. This vague undertaking was not at all what Charles had been led to expect, and matters soon got worse. The Pope died in late summer 1623, and as a successor was being found, no dispensation for the marriage could come, which added additional delays. Worse still was the stunning defeat to Charles's hopes when it was learned that the Spanish Council of State had voted in favour not of unconditionally restoring Frederick to the Palatinate, but of making use of the pre-existing imperial palatine marriage idea, which Frederick had already rejected. Through this deal, as a refresher, Frederick's firstborn son would be sent to Vienna, would marry a Habsburg, and when he came of age, he would return to rule his Palatinate. The devil was certainly in the details, though. Frederick would not be allowed to receive his lands in the meantime, and he would have to pay a ludicrously high sum of six million Reichsthalers. Even more painfully for Frederick, his son would be raised as a Catholic. Charles wasn't put off by the fact that the English delegation in Madrid accepted this approach. Instead, Charles pressed Philip for more palatable concessions, which moved Olivares to announce that You should not think that His Royal Majesty, the King of Spain, is willing to leave His Imperial Majesty, Emperor Ferdinand, helpless in all incidental occasions due to his sister's marriage. This amounted to a declaration that even with the marriage of the Infanta Maria to Prince Charles, the Spanish would remain determinedly pro-Austrian. Such a declaration would not have been a surprise to any student of history or to any observant contemporary of the time, but it certainly took Prince Charles off guard. Buckingham and Digby will negotiate further about this, Charles replied stormily in one of the few occasions where he publicly showed his displeasure towards the Spanish during his visit. Shortly after these disappointments, Prince Charles departed from Spain, but not before tying up some loose ends. 
On the 7th of September 1623, Charles swore to uphold the marriage contract as it then existed, and shortly thereafter, Charles met with Philip IV and urged him one last time to restore Frederick unconditionally. The best that the King of Spain could do was to suggest that Frederick might be restored as part of Charles's wedding present. Enough was enough for the Prince of Wales, though. He departed Madrid, and while in the course of his journey, he received Elizabeth's personal ambassador, who bore the letter from Charles's brother-in-law, which he had likely been expecting. Frederick, under no circumstances, would accept the Palatine Imperial marriage deal. Elizabeth urged her brother not to marry the Infanta until a solid commitment had been made for their restoration, which Charles knew, by now, deep down, was impossible for King Philip IV of Spain to grant. Charles worked at some stalling of his own, and he ensured that Sir John Digby didn't receive new instructions until the papal dispensation arrived from the new Pope. By then, as Charles well understood, he would be back in England. A change had gone through Charles's demeanour after these events. His initially calm and pleasant disposition had hardened, and according to Sir Francis Nethersoul, the personal ambassador of Elizabeth's who had delivered the letter to Charles, the Prince of Wales resolved to make war with Spain when he was in Spain, rather than not see the elector and electress honourably repaired. Elizabeth and her husband had not yet been made aware of Charles's dark change of attitude towards the Spanish match and towards Spain in general. I hope his majesty will one day see the falsehood of our enemies, but I pray God send my dear brother safe in England again, and then I shall be more quiet in my mind, Elizabeth wrote. It would not be for a few agonising weeks that the Palatine couple would learn the truth. The journey of their ambassador, nether soul, to Charles had done the trick, and the Prince of Wales was less drawn than ever before towards the Spanish marriage. What was more, having been led right around the bend for the last six months, Charles was angry, and when he learned from correspondence from home that his father James was ill, it may have seemed like something of an ideal opportunity for revenge. Frederick learned of these developments by late September, and ensured that his representative was in place in early October 1623 to greet Charles when he landed in Portsmouth. As the Prince of Wales entered London on the 6th of October, Frederick's representative recorded scenes of a city euphoric with joy. It seemed the people were collectively celebrating the failure of the Spanish match. Prince Charles received only the Palatine representative with some warmth, and a donation of £3,000 was raised for the welfare of the couple. Still though, in spite of the difficulties and insults, King James was under the impression that the marriage was going ahead, and that the Palatine imperial marriage was the best means for Frederick to be restored to his lands. On both cases though, James was mistaken. In spite of the assurances from James to Frederick that his son would never have to convert to Catholicism, and that this was the perfect time to make a lasting peace, Frederick would not accept the treaty. Perhaps Frederick had come to realise what King James apparently did not, that time was not on the British king's side. With Charles out of Spain, the Spanish continued to drag their heels, likely because of the delays which Charles had deliberately left behind him. James became frustrated at these developments, but he still refused to abandon the Spanish match idea. Relentlessly he pursued it, convinced that it represented the best and perhaps the only hope to restore his daughter and son-in-law. He may well have been right, but intractable problems and stumbling blocks remained. After many delays, 
The last straw seemed to come in early December 1623, when yet another delay for the wedding was announced, after the invitations for the wedding had already been sent out, and the Spanish were sufficiently embarrassed to cancel the Infanta's English lessons, and Maria no longer accepted any correspondence from Prince Charles, which by this point had greatly decreased in any case. By this point, Emperor Ferdinand had also abandoned the idea of any kind of conference in Cologne, and an 11th hour proposal for a Palatine-Bavarian marriage couldn't salvage the situation either. King James was in something of a crisis, because if he announced that he had given up on the whole idea, then the clamour for war with the Spanish would undoubtedly increase. On the other hand, pursuing pointless negotiations had become a thankless, tiresome process, and Frederick's constant entreaties were draining James's energies. Meanwhile, Prince Charles wanted to break off the negotiations and prepare for a war with Spain. If Philip IV would not accede to what had originally been agreed, if diplomacy would not return his sister Elizabeth and Frederick to the Palatinate, then a resort to arms would surely be the only recourse. Charles had tried diplomacy. James, without a doubt, had tried diplomacy. But diplomacy had failed. Through a combination of factors, the year which began and contained such high hopes on an Anglo-Spanish match was ending with relations between the two states at their lowest ebb in several years. It was time to fulfil the nightmare the Spanish had for so long sought to avoid, to solidify a wide-ranging Protestant alliance, to bolster the Dutch, and above all, to return the Palatine family at sword point if necessary, regardless of the consequences either from the King of Spain or the Holy Roman Emperor himself. It was time, in addition, to ride the wave of anti-Spanish hysteria, which had been bubbling ever since the whole wretched crisis had begun. By mid-December 1623, Frederick was informed that James was souring on the Spanish match, and intended soon enough to announce the break with Spain. The news must have hit Frederick like a bomb. After so many years of turmoil, so many frayed nerves and bitter disappointments, perhaps Frederick's greatest victory, this one of the diplomatic battlefield, appeared to be taking shape. It remained to be seen what 1624 would bring, but as many lords in the English court assured the Palatine representative, it could be expected that soon enough, things would get better for the Winter King and Queen. Next time, we'll conclude this incredible story, history friends, and unfold the full measure of the consequences of this failed marriage treaty. Thanks so much for joining me here. I hope you enjoyed this tangled examination of Anglo-Spanish diplomacy. But until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 30 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening to this show and for supporting it on Patreon, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.